This is Macro Horizons, episode 95, Vague Clarity, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 16th. As we ponder the dueling narratives of Fauci on one hand saying we won't be in a pandemic for much longer, and global central bankers on the other emphasizing the path of the coronavirus engaging the economic recovery, we can't help but paraphrase the classic adage, locked down if you do, locked down if you don't. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week that just passed, we saw a reasonable amount of activity in the Treasury market that will really help inform expectations for the period between now and the end of the year. Ten-year yields made an attempt to break 1%, but only got as far as 97 basis points in the run-up to the refunding auction. The auctions themselves went reasonably well, and what we saw was an adherence to the traditional patterns of selling in the run-up to the auction, then coming out of the process long, and the trade that made the most sense on Thursday ended up being the bull flattener. While this is conceptually at odds with our broader bear steepening call, it doesn't actually dissuade us from our thinking between here and the end of the year. This period of consolidation that the Treasury market is currently undertaking is longer term constructive as we consider the path toward higher rates. The beginning of the week saw positive news on the vaccine front, which suggested that the path out of the pandemic at least comes with some baseline assumptions, namely a 90% success rate for the Pfizer vaccine speaks well to the prospects that by 2022, the real economy will be back to some version of normality. Now, obviously, there are a great deal of hurdles between here and normal, not least of which production, distribution, and acceptance of the vaccine. That is clearly going to dominate the market narrative at the beginning of 2021. However, for the time being, the underlying net positive economic momentum speaks to the bias for higher rates between now and year end. On the economic data side, we did see a somewhat disappointing core CPI print coming in flat for the month of October with auto prices dragging for the first time in the pandemic. We've been emphasizing the relevance of auto and home prices in propping up core inflation, and this most recent report suggests that perhaps some of that great rotation out of urban centers and public transportation to the first and second ring suburbs and private transportation has potentially run its course. As cities reopen and urban centers begin functioning once again, we'll be watching very closely to see how the inflation complex evolves. 
A quick glance at 10-year break-even suggests that inflation expectations remain within the recent range at 172 basis points. 10-year break-evens are still shy of that 180 level and conform to the range that has been in place over the course of the last several months. One might also be tempted to say that that holds true for 10-year yields, although that attempt at 1% really has redefined the upper bound of the range. At the moment, the process of consolidation is somewhat exploratory insofar as the market is attempting to gauge the floor for 10-year yields, at least in the near term. 85 to 90 basis points seems the path of least resistance, and it's notable that that suggests equilibrium now is higher than it was prior to the initial election outcome results and the progress toward a vaccine. So while there's still legal challenges and recounts going on, it appears as if we finally have a result to the presidential election and that Joe Biden will be taking office on January 20th. Now, early in this past week, the yield moves that followed that decision are worth discussing, even if it's still unknown whether we'll see a true blue sweep or not, given the runoff election in Georgia. It was a pretty significant response in the Treasury market. We sold off into the election itself. That corrected the day following the election when it was clear that we wouldn't have a decisive victory in one direction or the other. And then the market chopped around a little bit. And it wasn't until Monday morning that we really saw the massive repricing that brought one-handle tins back onto the radar, although, to be fair, we never actually breached that level. And what I find striking is that response was not a function of the Biden victory or the assumption that Biden will ultimately take the White House. Because when we came in that morning, call it the 7 a.m. trading levels, the Treasury market was at roughly 80 basis points, give or take. The market didn't really respond to the political news as much as it responded to the vaccine news. And my takeaway from this is that it's very clear that the only thing that the market cares about at this stage is where we are in the pandemic and the prospects for additional shutdowns and what that might mean to the permanency of the unemployment situation as it currently stands, as well as the prospects for certain patterns of consumption to remain going forward. There's been a great deal said about how the pandemic of 2020 is going to truly redefine how people work and truly redefine the ways in which office space is utilized versus an environment that's more skewed toward working from home. I struggle, frankly, with a lot of things, but I struggle to imagine that this paradigm shift, in its current iteration at least, will prove to be permanent. Eventually, people will return to a work-from-work environment. Admittedly, though, I have been impressed with how quickly companies have been willing to adapt, and there certainly will be some changes that are permanent. That said, some of the economic pickups from firms effectively pushing back the costs of managing an office to home offices rather than office offices uh, will eventually dissipate. 
and we will see people going back into work. The question then obviously becomes, well, well, when does that occur? And the short answer is that the increase in COVID-19 cases that we have seen over the course of the last week have lengthened that time horizon, if anything. The flip side being a 90% success rate of the potential vaccine definitely represents a reason for optimism as we think about 2021 and beyond. And the developments around the pandemic also defined the second of this past week's two short weeks, when we saw the decision by leaders in Chicago to once again issue a stay-at-home advisory, meaning that people are expected to remain home except for venturing out for work or school. Now, Given the rapidly rising cases across the country, it's not unreasonable to expect other major metropolitan areas in the U.S. may follow suit in the not-too-distant future. But a key difference, as we've been talking about, between this episode and what took place in March and April is the fact that there is meaningful optimism surrounding the effectiveness and the timeline on what hopefully will ultimately be a widespread implementation of the vaccine. It's also important to highlight that so far, these quote-unquote re-lockdowns have been limited to major urban centers. We haven't seen a re-implementation of statewide lockdowns yet, and the fact that leaders at the local and state level seem to be content with keeping restrictions comparatively isolated should again serve to reinforce this idea that while lockdown fatigue will certainly set in much more quickly this time around, the economic implications of this incoming wave should be substantially less than what we saw the first time around. Of course, the upcoming changing of the guard in Washington adds an additional layer of nuance around this somewhat, but the fact remains that lockdown policies still remain more of a state and local issue than a national one. There was the risk that a blue sweep would lead to more buy-in on the state and local level for a national lockdown mandate, but the fact that we didn't see a definitive blue sweep really does reiterate that these are going to be decisions made on a state and local level. The other aspect of it that I think it's worth bearing in mind is that this is not the U.S.'s first wave of COVID-19. So we have protocols that can be deployed that have proven to be successful in flattening the curve. There has been a lot more information about the virus gained over the course of the pandemic, and people, generally speaking, have a higher degree of comfort. Now, that isn't to suggest that regardless of what lockdowns are imposed, that people will continue going about commerce as usual, rather I suspect that there are a fair amount of households and individuals who have chosen to err on the side of caution and what I would characterize as self-imposed lockdowns don't differ dramatically from what we might ultimately see at the peak of this next wave. And let us not forget, we were always expecting an additional wave as the winter months became a reality. The traditional flu season transitioned into a COVID-19 resurgence. And while the hospitals are arguably in a much better position to deal with the situation, we're still going to be trading off of case counts, at least in the very near term. I'll be fascinated to see how long this lasts. How long will Treasury yields be trading tick for tick with progress of the pandemic? One of the developments over the course of the last week, week and a half, came in the form of the Danish mink story. So if the virus can jump to a mammal, mutate and jump back to humans, 
this creates a potential problem for containing the spread of the virus. That said, health officials thus far seem to be de-emphasizing that as a risk, but there's little question that there is a tail risk associated with the mink issue. And taking a bit more of a markets or economic perspective on what makes this wave different, we've also seen unprecedented action both from Congress and the Fed to help aid the economy and keep markets functioning smoothly. Washington has approved something on the order of $3 trillion in COVID aid. Sure, some of that has been distributed and some of it hasn't. And meanwhile, the Fed's balance sheet has expanded by just shy of another $3 trillion. So the fact that policymakers, both fiscal and monetary, have been so willing to come to the aid of the recovery should also give investors some degree of solace that the catastrophic repricing we saw in March is probably going to be off the table for this cycle. The Fed stands ready as the liquidity provider of last resort, and it's probably safe to assume that the myriad of programs that were rolled out during this crisis are not going to be pulled back anytime soon. And Chair Powell said something interesting this past week, which is that while this vaccine news is certainly good for the medium-term outlook, which is a roundabout way of saying once it's effectively rolled out, things can get back to normal, in the near term, there are still substantial risks surrounding the path of the pandemic and what that means for economic activity and thus markets. So the fact that the Fed is acknowledging that the next several months could be a bit of a bumpy ride should reinforce this idea that they stand ready to do more if needed, And in fact, they likely will. And that brings us to the next question, which is, what does the Fed do in December? Now, as you point out, Ben, it seems path of least resistance for the Fed to extend many of their emergency liquidity programs because the Fed has laid the groundwork for the fact that we're still in an emergency situation. But is the Fed going to be willing to move forward with a wham extension of QE purchases if, for example, the curve proves unable to stage that bear re-steepening that we've been anticipating. My baseline assumption has always been that the Fed would only respond to a bear steepener with an extension of QE in the event that such a steepening has negative consequences for risk assets. Now, we often simply point to the domestic equity market as the obvious real-time barometer, but credit spreads are also continuing to tighten, which sets a backdrop for the Fed to be relatively hands-off in December if they decide to keep a wham extension of QE purchases in reserve should the situation devolve further in 2021. The flip side of that argument is, and this is one that's worth exploring a bit, throughout the bulk of this cycle, what we have seen is we have seen a Fed willing to jump in front of any potential tightening of financial conditions. Said differently, the Fed appears to be managing to forward financial conditions expectations at least insofar as small corrections in equities seem to be met with disproportionately aggressive monetary policy easing. The other thing that the Fed has done a great job of is separating emergency policy moves from the scheduled FOMC meetings themselves. If we look back on what the Fed has actually delivered thus far, the vast majority of it has been off-cycle. So that de-emphasizes the mid-December 
meeting per se and leaves the onus on the performance of risk assets into the end of the year. Given the overall condition of the real economy, combined with the successful trials of the vaccine, at least thus far, it's difficult to assume that there'd be a great deal of urgency on the part of the Fed at this current moment. The primary way that I could see the Fed deciding to deliver a WAM extension is that it would be in keeping with market participants' expectations. And therefore, by not delivering the WAM extension, they risk a correction in equities and a tightening of financial conditions. I think we'll get a much better sense of where the Fed stands on that topic over the course of the next couple of weeks with the incoming commentary from Fed officials, as well as the incremental data, which will set the stage for the Fed's final meeting this year. And looking at the price action itself, this doesn't take one-handle tens off the table. Following the election, following the vaccine news, we've once again settled into a period of equilibrium in a trend that has really defined the last several months in the treasury market. It wasn't so long ago we were talking about 10-year yields tethered to 65 basis points, and then that level slowly became just north of 70 basis points, and then that level slowly became just north of 80 basis points, and now here we find ourselves in a once again redefined trading range. So this slow and steady bearish progress adds weight to the moves and suggests that rather than a temporary backup that will be met with substantial buying interest, there is the potential to see this process once again play out and establish yet another slightly higher trading range. So essentially, Ben, what you're saying is if at first you don't define reprice, reprice again. Just like grandma used to say. You must have had very interesting holiday dinners. The week ahead in the treasury market will be much less about the economic data and far more about the path of the pandemic. The increase in COVID-19 cases abroad as well as domestically has led to a series of additional lockdown restrictions. The big question will soon become how severe will those lockdown restrictions be and what ultimate economic impact will they have? Our baseline assumption is that it will be key for local businesses not to completely be shut down. Curfews and a rollback of indoor dining almost seems a foregone conclusion in a lot of the major metropolitan areas at this point. That will be less impactful for the real economy, however, because a lot of these businesses simply never reopened. And certainly for those that did reopen, they didn't do so in any capacity close to what we saw in 2019. The week ahead isn't without data, however. We do have retail sales on Tuesday. This data is for the month of October. And with the consensus looking for a half a percent gain in consumption, we're reminded that the bigger shifts in spending, as evidenced by the third quarter real GDP print, that really occurred on the service side, and goods consumption continues at a strong pace. We'll see a few housing releases as well, including building permits, housing starts, NAHB, as well as existing homes. The broader sentiment appears to be an incremental pullback in the pace of strong housing data, as evidenced by the consensus for a 1.6% decrease in existing home sales for the month of October. Let us not forget the emphasis on the employment market in the current environment. Last week saw the lowest initial jobless claims print of the pandemic thus far, and 
while this stabilization appears to be at a higher level than one might otherwise want to see, the fact of the matter is that claims continue to leak lower. The most recent private NFP print was above market expectations, and still 10-year yields are closer to 80 basis points than they are to 100. We're characterizing this as evidence that the overhang of the pandemic and the lingering election uncertainty remain the bigger driving forces for the next two months. As a result, the prospects for breaking 1% in 10-year yields will truly come down to how state and local governments handle the increase in COVID-19 cases and how investors interpret that response. We do continue to view the shape of the yield curve as nothing more than a directional trade. 530s and 210s made some pretty significant attempts at breaking out, but the fact of the matter is the range-defining price action midweek has restrained any of the more dramatic bear steepening efforts. The other takeaway from this price action is that any urgency on the part of the Fed to extend the weighted average maturity of QE purchases will be lessened by the fact that the curve hasn't broken out steeper. Now, there's still plenty of price action between now and the December FOMC meeting, and as a result, we remain open to some additional policy efforts on the part of the Fed in mid-December. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And while we'll lament yet another year of not participating in this week's competition at Augusta National, we find comfort in the fact that elf green was always more our color. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including without limitation any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. 
This podcast does not be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.